Father, thank you for the ways in which you do care for us. You provide and you lavish so much upon us, especially the riches of your grace. Please do use these gifts. We so long, as we sing periodically, we so long to see your churches full that all those, Lord Jesus, for whom you have died might be gathered in to enjoy the feast. Use these gifts and use us to that great and glorious end, we pray in your name. Amen. Please turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 16. Read just a few verses. That... um, that really are a reminder to us of the kind of world in which we live. Jesus understood it um, and sought to remind the disciples of it. So read with me at John 16, beginning at verse 25. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father." His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you have come from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. And will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, speak to us. Come and stand among us um, and grant to us the assurance of your abiding presence. Uh, Grant us your spirit so that spirit and word would come together with, with great force and power to shape our thinking, correct our thinking, enlarge our thinking, but more than that, May word and spirit come together to work themselves deeply, ever more deeply, into the fabric of our souls so that we might live with wisdom in the midst of this world. Lord Jesus, do this and you will be praised. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. But after all of that, I got on an airplane on Wednesday morning. And I have to tell you, getting on that airplane, I was a little uncertain. I was a little uncertain. Um, Last Tuesday morning, I was awake at 3 in the morning, uh, which is not 
uh, sadly an uncommon thing. I was awake at 3 o'clock in the morning, and my head was filled with images and faces, the images of the explosions in Boston, the faces of news reporters and witnesses, people reporting on the events, people who were there and, and witnessed the events. And I turned on the light in the room where I was sleeping and found my copy of the Divine Hours, which is a devotional guide that I use, Barb and I both use with some regularity. And the first words that I recall seeing were these words from Psalm 123. To you, I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. To you, I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And honestly, for the next hour and a half, maybe it was two hours, I sat with those words and just reflected upon them. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens, to you I lift up my eyes. Don't you love how the scriptures use language of sight, inviting us? to look at and for things we can't see? Where do you look when tragedy strikes? Where do you go to make sense of it all? It's been so striking to me, and I I suspect to you too, so striking to me in the hours following this attack, to hear all of the references, encouragements, admonitions, pleas, all of which use language like this, thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Where are those thoughts going? Where are those prayers going? To what? To whom are people looking? I've mentioned Charlie Chaplin before. Some of you maybe haven't heard this, but Charlie Chaplin, who, when he learned that there was no evidence of life on Mars, said, I feel lonely. Poignant, huh? Sad. I feel lonely. Tragic. How come? Because for Charlie Chaplin, this is all there is. Earth is all there is in the midst of this vast, vast cosmos, this really, really big, almost measureless expanse of stars and solar systems and galaxies, billions of them, and nothing else, no one else. Mary Chapin Carpenter is one of my favorite 20th century, 21st century poets. Singer, songwriter. She's got an edge. She's desperately cynical. More than anything else, I wish I could get a book into her hands. The book by N.T. Wright called Surprised by Hope. If anybody knows how I can get to Mary Chapin Carpenter, please tell me. Here's some words, some language from a song of hers. Is it too much to ask 
I want a comfortable bed that won't hurt my back, food to fill me up, and warm clothes and all that stuff. Shouldn't I have this? Shouldn't I have this? Do I want too much? Am I going overboard to want that touch? I shout it out to the night. Give me what I deserve because it's my right. The night. The darkness. The emptiness. Is that all there is? Look, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, probably as I speak to most of you. But you have friends. You're networked with people who look at the vastness of space and they would quote Charlie Chaplin and they would say, I feel lonely. They would quote Mary Chapin Carpenter and say, I shout out to the night, to the blackness, to the nothingness, the nihil. There's nobody there. There's nobody home. Listen to the things that I'm going to say to you this morning and take these things as words of good news to your friends. One more, W.H. Auden. I understand from reading Tim Keller's book, Reason for God, after W.H. Auden's return to Christianity from atheism, criticized his atheist friends when they, his atheist friends, complained about injustice in the world. His response, in effect, was, why do you complain? There's no one there to hear your complaint. If you're an atheist, there's nobody there to hear your complaint. There's no one who can do anything about the injustice that so troubles you. Nobody. But then there's the psalmist who in the midst of his trouble, whatever it was, we don't, we don't know the particulars. This psalm, Psalm 120, is one of 15 psalms. We, they refer to themselves. The authors refer to them as songs of ascent. Three of them are written by David. One of them is from Solomon. The rest, we don't know whose they were. We don't know whose work they were, but they're all collected in this sort of mini little songbook in the midst of the Psalter, and people uh, have suggestions about how they were used, that they actually were used as, as a, a, a liturgical device, as people would go up to Jerusalem, literally go up to Jerusalem, ascending to Jerusalem, there to engage in temple worship. We don't know for sure, but they're all collected, and they're called these songs of ascent. Psalm 123, in the midst of his trouble, whatever it was, he makes reference to to contempt. We've had more than enough of contempt, of scorn. Our soul has had more than enough of scorn, the scorn of those who are at ease, the contempt of the proud. We don't know the particulars, but he's in trouble. He's feeling trouble. He's feeling the weight of his circumstance, which is so often the case in the Psalms which is why the Psalms have been treasured and loved and delighted in. If you don't do this, use the Psalms to give expression to the agonies, the groans, the cries that you feel in your own souls. You'll find a voice for those things in the Psalms. We don't know what his 
particular circumstance was. But in the midst of it, where does he look? In the midst of it, he has a place to go. There is a place to go. And it's reflected in this first verse, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. He has a place to go. He goes to the unseen realm, doesn't he? Look, watch CNN, watch MSNBC, watch Fox. I don't care which of the news outlets you watch. What are they doing in the midst of the post-Boston thing? What are they looking to? They're looking to what can be seen. They're looking to some expert someplace who can figure out what the heck is going on. Where does the psalmist go? He doesn't go sideways. He goes up. He looks up. And he looks beyond this veil. We refer to this veil all the time. He looks beyond this veil that separates the seen from the unseen. He looks for what he can't see. He looks to the one who is on the other side of that veil. And what does he find there? What does he What does he find there? Well, let's just make this observation first. He looks to one whom he knows to possess mercy in the midst of his distress. He looks to the one whom he knows to have mercy. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Looks to the one who possesses mercy. Where have you looked in these last few days? Should have take your hymnal in hand. And I want you to turn in your hymnal to page 869. We're going to do something that we kind of do but have never really done in this way before. We use as affirmations of faith, as confessions of faith, catechetical questions from the shorter catechism, from the larger catechism, from the Heidelberg catechism. I want you to look at question four. It's on page 869. And I'm going to ask the question, and I want you to read the answer. And as you read the answer, I want you to listen to the words that you speak. You ready? What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. When you look on the other side of the veil, what's over there? The psalmist 
The psalmist looks on the other side of the veil, expecting that on the other side of the veil, he will see one who possesses mercy. It's interesting, isn't it, that mercy isn't listed here in question number four as one of the attributes of God. Do you wonder why that is? You know another one that isn't listed here? Love is not listed here. Why is that, do you suppose? Let me give you the answer, at least as I understand it. The reason mercy and love are not listed as one of the attributes or as two of the attributes of God in question number four is because the theologians through the centuries have understood love and mercy to be aspects of God's goodness. His goodness is this large and multifaceted thing. Goodness is the love of God. Goodness is the mercy of God. Goodness is the compassion of God. Goodness is the kindness of God, the tenderness of God. And notice what goodness is connected to in the first of the words in the answer to the question, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Infinite and eternal, infinite, limitless with respect to space, measureless with respect to capacity or amount, eternal, limitless with respect to time, never ending, not bounded in any respect or in any way concerning time and space or any other form of measurement. What's on the other side of the veil? God who is infinite and eternal and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And you want proof texts. You need proof texts. You need places to go for a demonstration of this. So let me give you just two. Let me give you Psalm 68, verses 4 through 6. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before Him. Why? Because He is the Father of the fatherless. He is a protector of widows. This is God in His holy habitation on the other side of the veil. One who who cares for the fatherless. One who cares for the widow. Verse 6, one who cares for the lonely, the solitary, who sets them in a home, who leads out even prisoners to prosperity. Why is God praised? Because He's good. Because He's good. And His goodness is evidenced in His mercy, His love, His grace, His tenderness, His concern for those, those who are broken, ravaged, damaged by the terrible effect 
acts of the first rebellion. I'll give you another. I said I was going to give you a couple. I'm going to give you four. Let me give you another. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. How different is this God? This God speaks to Israel through Moses before Moses leaves the scene and Joshua comes on the scene. This Deuteronomy, this second law, is a, is a repeating and a summarizing and in some cases an expanding of what the people had received a generation before. As God speaks to them, he points out to them that his law is really different from other people's laws, other nations' laws. And the reason the laws, the truth, the teaching, the wisdom, the instruction. You remember Mark Futado talking about Torah and that Torah is more than just prescriptions and proscriptions. It's wisdom. It's teaching. And the reason this teaching is different is because the God of Israel is different. And before God gets into the particulars... Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 through 8, God through Moses says to the people, keep them and do them, for this will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? This God's different, my friends. And the God that is on the other side of the veil is a God filled with compassion. He's different. Moses acknowledges he's near to us. He hears and he cares. And where does this find greatest expression? You know where it finds greatest expression. You know where all of this wisdom, all of this teaching, all of this righteous law that is so filled with compassion, you know where it finds its greatest expression in Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 40 and following passage you probably know early in the ministry of Jesus a leper comes to Jesus and cries out the leper does the unthinkable thing he rushes into a crowd and Jesus rather than sending him away retreating from him when he cries out for mercy Jesus heart is moved and he touches him He touches the leper. He does the unthinkable thing. He takes the AIDS patient, embraces him, holds him in his arms without fear and restores him. Matthew chapter 9, 25 and following, Jesus looks at the crowds and he is moved with compassion because he sees the crowds as sheep without a shepherd. It's a condemnation of those who were supposed to be shepherds and weren't. And it breaks his heart that the sheep are without a shepherd. They're exploited. They're exposed. They are flayed. That's what the language means. 
Jesus has compassion for them. And in chapter 10, what does he do? He sends his disciples out into the harvest fields to do what? Harvest? Yes, certainly. But to show to those who are exposed and exploited, fleeced and flayed, the same compassion that Jesus shows in his ministry. Remember Luke 7 from a couple of weeks ago? What a powerful passage when Jesus meets the widow at Nain, raises her son back to life and gives him back to his mother. What's on the other side of the veil? Where do you look? You look to a God who is good, good, filled with love, filled with mercy, filled with compassion. But here's the second thing. As the psalmist looks at what he can't see, what does he see? Verse 1. He sees this one to whom he looks. Enthroned in the heavens. What's the significance of a throne? What's the significance of a throne? What does it represent? Those of you who remember and were with us on some Sunday evenings a while ago as we we tried to make our way through the Revelation, tried to do it sequentially. The next time I'm going to do it a different way because it's not a book that really works sequentially. It works cyclically. But one of the recurring images over 35 times in the book of the Revelation is what? A throne. And the throne is not empty. The God of glory is seated upon the throne and the one who appears as a lamb slain, approaches the throne, is granted power and authority and dominion, fulfilling the vision of Daniel in chapter 7. And the psalmist looks into the heavens and he sees the God of glory enthroned, ruling and reigning as a king. He sees not only someone who cares, who possesses mercy, but he sees the king of all the earth. And what do kings do? They rule. And what do they need in order to rule? What do they need in order to rule? They need wisdom. They need power. Turn to your hymnal again. This time page 851. Chapter 5 of Providence, Section 1. Let's read this together. It's a good exercise. Read it with me. God, the great Creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least 
by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. God is a king, friends, and we don't have the four hours or five or six or the whole semester that we need just to unpack that one paragraph from the Westminster Confession of Faith. But here is what the psalmist sees when he looks beyond the veil to the other side of the veil. He sees a God filled with mercy and compassion, infinitely and eternally good. And he sees a God enthroned in the heavens who rules and reigns, possessing infinite power and infinite wisdom, who is guiding and directing and sustaining all things in accordance with what he purposed to do before the foundation of the world. God created, and there is this wonderful word in that first paragraph of that chapter, and it is the word sustains. There are all kinds of aberrant views of God's relationship to this world in which we live. One of them, sadly, tragically, Deism is this view of the world that God set things in motion. He created it. It's up to us to perfect it. Folks, that's what, and I've checked my sources on this, so I'm not just winging it here. That is the view that many of our founding fathers had of God. I'm not disparaging anything. But that is the view that many of our founding fathers had. He started it. It's up to us to finish it. A century and a half before them, the Westminster divines captured the true biblical view of God and his relationship to the world. He not only created it, but he sustains it. He upholds it. He directs it. He guides it. And there is nothing outside the scope, nothing outside the pale of his influence, his power, his wisdom. He guides, he directs, he orders all things to the praise of his glory and his power and his wisdom, extending even to his mercy. And if you read other places in the Confession of Faith, you will find that the framers of the confession affirmed what is for us a headache. And that headache is this, affirming that God in providence upholds and sustains and orders and directs everything. And if you need a text for this, it's Hebrews Chapter 1, the first couple of verses, where Jesus is identified as the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus does that, parenthetical thing here. Who was upholding? 
Who is upholding those deeply, terribly misguided and, and even conceivably evil Chechen young men who set off those bombs in Boston? Do you suppose for a minute that this becomes a safe world in which to live if those two men or any others act outside the pale of the influence of the God of heaven and earth who is enthroned in the heavens. They are not maverick molecules. They are not free agents. All things means all things, my friends. You have two answers. This is tough. I'll use a simple illustration and you can work out the implications. There are two answers to the question, why are you here this morning? And they are equally true. Neither is more true than the other. There are two answers to the question, why you are here this morning. You are here because God ordained that you would be here And everything that was necessary to ensure that you would be here, God sustained, guided, directed in order for his purpose that you be here, be fulfilled. That's one answer. The other answer is the alarm clock went off. You got up, you put your clothes on, you got in your car, and you came. And they are equally true. One is more ultimate and is finally ultimate, but the other is no less real. God. Now I'll give you some passages. You can take these home with you. I'll try to go slowly here in these couple of minutes, but take these passages home, look at them, meditate on them, reflect upon them. They all come from Isaiah. We could go a million places. Isaiah 40, verses 27 to 31. Isaiah 45, verses 4 through 7. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. Those passages, along with a passage like Psalm 139, should make it very clear to you that God knows everything, sees everything, and has power, ability, sufficient to order, direct, and guide everything to purposes and ends which he has appointed. So what are we saying? We're saying... This is a, was a stunning thing to me. We are saying what Zach acknowledged in his opening prayer. That this God whom we worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is both good and great. Immensely so. Infinitely so. Limitlessly so. The providence of God is mysterious. The providence of God is perplexing. There is a lot at stake here, and I recognize that. But there's a lot in the physical world that is perplexing. 
I didn't talk to Frank, my astronomer friend, but I wish I had before this morning because I'm only reflecting things that I think I remember hearing about, about the controversy or the controversy, as we would say in England, or as they would say. So what is light anyway? What is light anyway? Is it a particle? Is it a wave? Here's what I know. It is what it is. And if it is anything other than what it is, you and I do not exist. Is God good in the midst of the horrors of Boston? Is God great in the midst of the horrors of Boston? Is he a God of providence who upholds and sustains all things so that he directs and guides them to their appointed ends? Every moment of every day in the circumstance of every human being, whoever has lived, is living, or will live on the face of this earth, touching not only human beings, but the whole of the cosmos, is he both good and great, upholding and sustaining everything to this glorious consummate end, that he be glorified and his people know inconceivable gladness. Let me tell you, he is who he is. And if he is any different from who he is, this world would not be a safe place in which to live. Now, that leaves us, doesn't it, with this relentlessly perplexing question. What in God's name was God doing in Boston? And I'm going to suggest to you that there is one way, one way to begin to get at an answer to that question. And it's this. What? In God's name, was he doing when the most evil of all evils was perpetrated against the only truly innocent person who ever existed? What in God's name was he doing at the cross? Here's what he was doing. He was securing an incomprehensibly, unfathomably great good. And if in the most evil of all evils ever perpetrated against another human being can result in a good greater than can be measured, It seems to me that through that lens, we can begin to understand 
that what doesn't make sense to us right now, entrusted to a God who is both good and great, will in the end produce good. Got to see this through the cross, my friends. It's the only grid through which, it seems to me, acts of true violence, real evil, may be understood. In the cross, the most evil of all acts, God has secured an infinite good. And lesser, though real evils, real, though lesser evils, can in the same way be means by which and will be means by which God accomplishes his good purpose. There's hope in that, my friends. Mystery. Perplexity, you betcha. But hope that even these events are in the hands of this God who is both good and great. I'll just close with the illustration of the tapestry. You've heard it before. It is a good illustration. God is weaving the tapestry from above. We see the tapestry from beneath. It seems to make no sense, but we are not the weavers. We are the threads, the strands. And God, in real tenderness, is weaving together along with everything else in the whole of human history and across the whole of the cosmos to produce a thing of exquisite beauty and glory. And he can do that because he is good and because he is great. Let's pray together.